Hello and welcome back to Reading and Evaluating the Demond Brothers, where we systematically pick apart the two books that were given to me for this task. Now we have a P.O. box here at the Very Lutheran Project. If you go to verylutheran.biz, you can find where the P.O. box is on the support tab there. You can send me stuff like this for me to read and evaluate and put up there on SoundCloud. Chances are, I'll read it. I'll evaluate it. But the DeMond brothers, back to them, uh, we're reading Brother Peter DeMond's book, The Bible Proves the Teachings of the Catholic Church. Okay, while well, we started to examine that last week, and we found that they are masters at not proving the Catholic faith using the Bible. They are masters, however, of dishonesty and ignorance. They are dishonest and ignorant about what Protestants believe. They don't understand why we believe what we believe, or that there is actually common ground between Protestants and Catholics. <gasps> I know you're not supposed to say that, but they honestly thought every single Protestant on planet Earth denies the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. That's wrong. They believe that Protestants don't have anything nice to say about Mary other than, well, she was a really nice lady, but we don't call her, you know, Mother of the Church or Ark of the New Covenant or anything like that. No, we do. But let's zero in on some of the Marian doctrines we're going to read about today and discuss this sneakiness of the DeMond brothers. Because they want to say that the Bible proves the Catholic faith, and they know that it doesn't. The Roman Catholic Church knows that the Bible does not prove the Roman Catholic religion to be true. To the contrary, they say... That doctrine comes from scripture plus tradition. They like to say the consensus of the fathers and the Roman Catholic magisterium, these are infallible, as well as whenever a pope says something ex cathedra, that is, from the chair of St. Peter, that's from Vatican I, the pope ends up being infallible. So if they say something that adds to what scripture says, they'll say, well, we can trust that. We trust the magisterium in the fathers and the papacy. Now, as a Lutheran, as a Protestant, I deny this. I deny that tradition, capital T or lowercase t, should ever be the source of doctrine. The source of doctrine is the scriptures alone. The church fathers contradict each other all the time. The magisterium of today that selects which church fathers they agree with or disagree with, they're going to change their tune over the years. And even then, the ones that they agree with, they're going to interpret differently than the magisterium had 100 or 200 or 300 years ago. Rome keeps changing its tune on things, and each council makes those problems worse. And they're going to be very selective about things like, here is the infallible magisterium speaking through the councils. Don't believe me? Ask how the Pope reacted to Canon 28 of Chalcedon. Not a happy camper with it. He just flat denied what the infallible magisterium said.
But the Demond brothers, they want to claim that you can just prove the Roman Catholic position 100% correct by virtue of the scriptures alone. They want to sidestep sola scriptura by saying, oh sure, you can have your sola scriptura, but that's just going to lead you to Rome, pal. Or preferably our breakaway Protestant sect in the middle of nowhere that claims to be the true Roman Catholic faith while we proclaim that a pretender is on the throne of St. Peter. You know, Roman Catholicism. Let's look at how they claim the Bible proves Roman Catholicism and how they sneak in lots of little things here and there that are most definitely not the Bible. We're continuing on in their teachings on Mary, the biblical basis for Catholic teachings on Mary. Only Mary and her sinlessness completely fulfill what is predicted in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee, the serpent, and the woman. Shortly after the fall of Adam and Eve, God makes this prophecy. Genesis 3.14 and 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. She shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. Hmm. Well, there's a problem there. Let's open up the Bible and look at another translation. See, they rely on a very goofy little translation with a lot of bad ideas behind it in order to get at this. Genesis 3.15 in the ESV says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Ah, so their translation says, She shall crush thy head. She, who's she? Well, the assumption would be, of course, this has to be Mary. Mary is the one crushing the head of the serpent. Mary is the one winning ultimate victory against the devil for all of us. Big problem, though, is not all Bibles are going to say that. They're going to claim, well, there's ambiguity in the Hebrew. They have a little section there saying, I know Protestant Bibles don't say this, <laughs> but the ambiguity of the Hebrew makes it to where we can say that. Really? Well, let's ask ancient Hebrew scholars in the Septuagint how they put it. Here is the very same verse from the Septuagint saying, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall watch against thy head, and thou shalt watch against his heel. Hmm. Not saying that this is a woman crushing a head. No, the Septuagint emphasizes a long-standing enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And the seed is male, not female. The Septuagint predates the Vulgate translation of the scriptures by 600, 700 years or so. And the people that wrote the Septuagint, translating the scriptures of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, they were native speakers of Hebrew. 
I am going to be intellectually honest and trust the native speakers of Hebrew who wrote the Septuagint translation when they say that the seed is a boy, not a girl. And it's the boy crushing the head of the serpent. But the DeMond brothers, well, they're Roman Catholics, right? They want to say the Vulgate is basically supreme. And you got to go off of what the Vulgate says, even though the dude that translated it had to learn Hebrew and had a really, really, really hard time doing it. I believe that that part of the Vulgate is a mistranslation, but they'll say, that's beside the point. God says that there will be enmity, hostility, division, opposition between the devil and the woman. In the same context, we read of the seed of the woman and the victory which will be granted through the woman and her seed. In the Bible, a man's children and descendants are spoken of as his seed. The seed of the woman, therefore, is something unique. It refers to a child which is produced by a woman alone. This obviously refers to the virginal conception and birth from the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Jesus' mother. The seed of the woman refers to Jesus Christ. That is kind of true. It is true that in scripture, a seed is typically from a father. God says to Abraham, it is by his seed that he will bless the families of the earth. And St. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 that that seed, that offspring in the singular is our Lord Christ. Now at the same time, Christ is also the seed of the woman. So he is the seed of Abraham, singular seed, and he is also the seed of the woman. How do we wrap our heads around this? Well, he comes from the line of Abraham, down through the line of Israel, down through the line of Judah, down through the line of David, through Mary, and by adoption, or being the stepson of Joseph. But he is also the seed of the woman on account of the virgin birth. This is most certainly true, but let's see if the DeMond brothers have an idea as to where that should go. Therefore, the woman herein identified as having opposition or enmity with the serpent is clearly Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. The woman is not Eve, who gave in to the serpent. It is Mary. No, that's just wrong. <laughs> when God tells, and we'll even go off of the DeMond brothers' preferred translation, going off of the Vulgate translation, the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Question for you. Do you think Eve liked serpents very much after being expelled from Eden? Oh, but you see, the DeMond brothers want to extrapolate this out to Mary, who I'm sure didn't like serpents very much either and didn't like the devil very much either. Sure, but it is not textually or exegetically thorough to simply say, oh, woman, that, yeah, gotta be Mary. 
I'm just assuming that. No, see, that is stacking the deck. The Demond brothers presuppose that this woman is automatically Mary rather than a connection to Mary. God, for all we know, could be speaking of womankind or all women having an opposition to the serpent. But he keeps going. Oh my goodness, doesn't he keep going with this sneaky sort of exegesis where he puts in his presuppositions. God says that he will put enmity or opposition between the serpent and the woman. As a result, Mary must be completely preserved from sin. <laughs> For when one sins, one does not have opposition to the devil, but rather gives in to the devil. The only way the woman could have complete and definitive opposition to the serpent is by preservation from sin and from the sin of Adam. Oh my goodness. If you don't like the devil, you can't sin one little bit, pal. Otherwise, you're giving in to the devil. That's how this works. And that means that Mary must have been without sin, period, or else she could not have opposed the devil. Now, I have a question for you, dear listeners. Do you like the devil? Do you sin? Hmm. Well, I guess these are both true, at least on my part. Lord knows I am a poor, miserable sinner who needs to be saved by grace. I also hate the devil. I can't stand the guy. I don't like that I get tempted to sin. But my sin is not an automatic declaration of allegiance to Satan. My goodness, do these guys not understand that with a statement like that, they have damned everybody? Oh, but they want this to go and prove Mary's supposed sinlessness. So they're willing to damn just about everybody without thinking about it on account of their logic. You see, they presuppose that Mary is the woman being referred to here, specifically Mary only. There's no double applications for the DeMond brothers here. And that means Mary has to be sinless because, here's another insertion, any sin you commit whatsoever is giving in to the devil and not being in opposition to him ever, ever, period. Therefore, if somebody sins, they're on the devil's team. Hmm. That is an insertion. That's not the Bible proving Roman Catholicism right. That is sneaking in human logic. The Bible does not say Mary was sinless. It does not. Not in one single verse, not in one single word. I challenge anybody to look at the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, and for you Vulgate fans, in the Latin, does any single verse say the words, Mary was sinless? Mary was without sin. Mary never sinned and there was no original sin in her. You will not find that in the Bible. Even if you search the Deuterocanon, you will not find this or anything even close to hinting at it, plainly stated in Holy Scripture. Now the DeMond brothers want to say that Scripture proves the Roman Catholic faith. But here is a sneaky admission that it doesn't because they have to insert their reason. They have to insert the reason-based 
exegesis of the old church fathers who advocated for a sinless Mary. They have to sneak this in through the back door and hope that you don't notice. Don't believe me? Let's read the next part. The fact that Mary is this woman, and therefore completely free from the domination of sin and the devil, is the reason that Jesus calls Mary woman throughout the New Testament. Jesus never calls his mother anything but woman. Many non-Catholics think this was Jesus' way of belittling his mother and downplaying her role. On the contrary, Jesus was identifying Mary as the woman of Genesis 3.15. Does the Bible teach you in any verse, in any statement in Holy Scripture, that when Jesus calls Mary, his mother, woman, that that is him identifying her as the woman of Genesis 3.15? The answer is no. But the DeMond brothers want you to think that their exegesis, based on their reason, their extrapolations that they snuck into the text, is somehow valid. Now, in case you say, well, pastor, this is just a difference in interpretation. Well, no, it's not. Lutherans have to work very hard to avoid rationalism and enthusiasm when reading Holy Scripture. There is an is statement in the Bible. That does not automatically mean it gives us an ought. We have to know the difference between prescription and description. Prescription tells you what to do, while description tells you what is. So, here, God gives a prophecy, a description of what will happen. The Demond brothers turn that into a prescription that all of us have to believe that Mary was sinless. My goodness is that silly, but don't worry. Uh, brother Peter Demond will tell me that I just don't know how to read the Bible. Many non-Catholics also object that if Mary is so crucial... Why would Jesus allow the gospel writers to perhaps give the impression that he was belittling the place of his mother? Referring to the wedding at Cana, where Christ says, Woman, what is that to me and to thee? They contend that certain verses give that impression, or don't do much to dispel that notion. The answer is that God does not cast pearls before swine. He often slightly conceals his truths, or puts them just under the surface so that superficial efforts or insincere people will pass over them or be left with the wrong impression. However, those who are more patient and dig deeper or who simply trust the church which Jesus established will find the gem and the true meaning. And citing from Luke 8, 8 through 10, you know, our Lord says to you, it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to the rest in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing may not understand. This is so very true in the case of the Bible's teaching on Mary's profound role. Superficial readings and insincere efforts will keep people blind to it, but it's there in scripture. Mary is the new Eve and the woman of Genesis 3.15, as we have seen. She is also the Ark of the New Covenant, and so much more as we will see. 
It's all there in the biblical typology and many passages more deeply understood. But so many remain oblivious to it, seeing they see not and hearing they hear not. Having failed to trust the one church which Christ established, they have sadly acquired only a shallow and misguided understanding of the Bible's teaching. Do they not see the incredible irony of this? Here are Roman Catholics rebelling against the Roman Catholic Church by refusing to recognize Pope Francis as the Pope, the legitimate heir to the throne of St. Peter, rebelling against the entirety of organized Catholicism, telling you that because you are not part of the one true church, you can't understand the Bible. And they are saying this while they are intentionally or unintentionally misinterpreting Holy Scripture. I don't know if the irony is lost on this guy, but it is hilarious, especially since his response that he has prepackaged into this book is to say, you're a stupid idiot. You don't know how to read the Bible. You're like in the kiddie pool of reading the Bible. Well, we are in the nice depths. We're in the Marianas Trench of biblical interpretation here. So much depth that you can't even possibly understand that what we're saying is true. You stupid idiot. That's not the Bible proving it. That's not them addressing Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In case we think Jesus just stuttered, in Luke chapter 11, this happened again. Verse 27 through 28, As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Our Lord Christ makes it pretty darn plain that hearing God's word, believing God's word, obeying God's word is far more important than blood lineage to the point where he would declare people who are not his mother by blood to be his mother by their faith and obedience to his words now when christ speaks we listen and if he calls a woman an old lady sitting in the church in the year of our lord 2023 who is patiently listening to god's word and obeying it if jesus says that woman is my mother and the woman next to her both of them my mother you'd better listen and you better put the same stock in those women who patiently and devotedly serve our god as you do mary mary is not above these women Oh, but I'm sorry. Like the Demond brothers, I am separate from the Roman Catholic Church, which means I don't know how to read the Bible. And even if I do, it's just a superficial, plain, dumb-dumb reading, just like theirs, because they are also separate from the Roman Catholic Church. Therefore, I guess this is just idiots talking, according to the Demond brothers anyway.
it's also funny that they say, if you're not part of the one true church, you can't really understand the Bible. And that's another instance of them sneaking in a lot of tradition from a lot of Roman Catholics that have said similar things. Hmm. Sneaky, sneaky. And they keep skulking around, too, especially as we go to the phrase, full of grace, from Luke 1, 27 through 31. And the virgin's name was Mary, and the angel being come in said to her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And they spend a good amount of time arguing that that is the best translation. Hail Mary, full of grace. And they quote a Protestant Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, saying this about Luke 1 verse 28. Highly favored, which in the Greek is kakaritomene, perfect passive principle of karato, which means endowed with grace, enriched with grace, as in Ephesians 1 verse 6. The Vulgate, gratiae plena, is right if it means full of grace which thou hast received. Wrong if it means full of grace which thou hast to bestow. That's Robertson, Word Pictures of the New Testament, Luke 1 verse 28. To which the Demond brothers say, If Mary is full of grace, that in itself strongly suggests that she is without sin, for grace is in opposition to sin. The angel is not saying that Mary will become full of grace, but that he has encountered Mary already in that state. She was conceived in that state. Moreover, Mary is pronounced blessed among women because her position is unique. That's just wrong. <laughs> Hail full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Why is Mary full of grace? Because God is with her. Not because she was born in a super special way. The angel, Gabriel, immediately explains why she is considered full of grace. Now, of course, Roman Catholics are going to define grace differently than we Protestants will. But grace really is unmerited favor. You are full, dear Mary, of God's unmerited favor. He is going to bless your socks off. And how? Because he is with you and you are going to bear the Messiah, as Gabriel later explains. He does not say, what's up, perfect sweet cheeks? You who were born without sin? Full of grace does not mean sinless. It means full of grace, full of unmerited favor because of what is about to happen. But since they are undertaking a project of saying that the Bible says things it doesn't say, they're going to keep sneaking in these little traditions, these little logical leaps that they're going to make because otherwise they wouldn't be writing this book to try to make a sucker out of you to try to con you into believing things the Bible doesn't say. For instance, last one guys, the next section is about the perpetual virginity of Mary. Now, think about the title of this book. The Bible proves the teachings of the Catholic Church. Really, does the Bible 
teach the perpetual virginity of Mary? Does the Bible say semper virgo? No, it does not. No statement in Holy Scripture says that Mary remained a virgin after giving birth to our Lord. It doesn't say she didn't remain a virgin. It doesn't say that she did remain a virgin. And so they go over all sorts of apologetics. Matthew 1 verse 25. He knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. According to Protestants, this proves that Mary ceased to be a virgin after the birth of Jesus. This is quite wrong. The Greek word for until or till, heos, does not imply that Joseph had marital relations with Mary after the birth of Jesus Christ. It simply means that they had no relations up to that point, without saying anything about what happened after that point. This is proven below by many passages. We should also bear in mind that the Bible was written several thousand years ago. It was written at a time and in languages which don't express and imply things the same way that they would be expressed and implied in modern English. Okay, but that's not the Bible proving the Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. It just doesn't. So what are you proving here to me? The most you can prove is that we don't know, which I'm perfectly fine putting my stamp of approval on that because Mary and Joseph's sex life or lack thereof is none of my business. So personally, I don't care, and it is complete adiaphora, whether or not anybody believes she was buried with a tombstone that said returned unopened or if she and Joseph had a bunch of kids like a giant Irish Roman Catholic family, eight to ten kids, right? I, I don't care. I just don't. And the Bible doesn't really force you to believe one way or another. You can say that normatively they would have gotten married, as was the custom. You can say that maybe the circumstances were different. Again, the answer is who cares? But they are going to keep hammering on this mixing up description of what is with interpretations that are not valid. For instance, what about the firstborn son in Matthew 125? Doesn't that imply other children? Matthew 125 again, knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son. Same as Luke 2, 7, she brought forth her firstborn son and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Firstborn son is a legal title given to a firstborn male child in a Jewish family. In other words, it is given to a male child who is also the first child. Okay, but that doesn't disprove the idea that maybe Mary had other kids. I don't have to believe in Semper Virgo just because this verse does not nullify Semper Virgo. Do you understand? They're taking the description of these verses and what the words actually mean and turn that into now you have to believe in Semper Virgo, which you do not. And they continue with the same vein of over-intellectualizing statements like the brothers of Jesus who could have been stepbrothers, could have been cousins, could have been anybody other than blood brothers by Mary. They'll keep on going on and on. And then they'll say John 19.26 proves that Mary had no children besides Jesus, apparently. 
John 19, verse 26 and 27, When Jesus therefore had seen his mother and the disciples standing whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. After that he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple, John, took her to his own. Scholars point out that this was a formal act of entrustment. Jesus entrusted his mother to St. John so that he would take care of her. If Mary had other children, as Protestants contend, Jesus would not have told St. John to take Mary for his mother. She would have been put into the care of one of his many brothers. The fact that Jesus entrusted Mary to St. John proves that she had no other children. That's not the case. That's an assumption that he's sneaking into the text. Maybe our Lord Christ had other reasons to entrust Mary's care to John rather than his blood brothers. You gotta think. Mary is the mother of the church. What is a better symbolic act of that than saying to the apostle, take care of your mother. She is the mother of the church. Again, in our baptism, we are united to Christ, the whole Christ, both human and divine nature, and that means his mommy is our mommy. Does that mean I pray to her? No. Does that mean I have to say that she is a magical individual without sin, blah, 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 blah? No, it's description, not prescription. So, what is a better way to symbolize that than to say, John, you take care of her, my beloved apostle, you take care of her because now she is the mother of the church. That's perfectly legit, especially because, as I read earlier from Luke and Matthew, Jesus says, Behold my brothers and sisters and mother. It is about the obedience to the word of God that is more important to him. The church is the family. Our Lord did not want blood feuds over proper succession by family or by followers, as we see with Shia and Sunni Islam today. That's a no-go. Jesus says no to that. But I digress. They take that description and say, well, clearly she had no other children, which is sneaking in their logical presuppositions. They do this all the time in this book. Sneaky, sneaky little additions to scripture, which means the Bible isn't proving Roman Catholicism and the Demond brothers know it. And they're willing to just lose their minds interpreting the Bible. Here they are interpreting Ezekiel 44 verse 2. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall pass through it. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it, and it shall be shut. Here we see that the Lord shall pass through this gate, and no other man shall pass through it. This is a prophecy about the perpetual virginity of Mary. She is the closed gate through whom the Lord comes. That's one reason why Mary has been called the gate of heaven in traditional Catholic writings. Mary's vagina shut forever. Because Jesus went through it. Mary's vagina is the magic gate through which no man shall ever pass, according, apparently, to Roman Catholic hermeneutics. And in case we forgot that the Bible teaches this, they also add church tradition. The perpetual virginity of Mary was firmly believed in the ancient Christian church. 
Second Council of Constantinople, if anyone says that the holy, glorious, and ever-virgin is called God-bearer by misuse of language and not truly, let him be anathema. And then they go over the Lateran Council. And then they go over, oh yes, St. Jerome also said this. Uh, the Helveticus was the heretic that denied it. And look at all these Protestants that believe it. You're appealing to tradition, not the Bible. To demonstrate that I really, really got to care about whether or not Mary was buried with a headstone that says returned unopened. I'm not going to take these guys seriously. If somebody says, you're being so mean, giving them silly voices and stuff like that. Um, I'm not the one saying Mary's vagina was prophesied in Holy Scripture as being shut forever. Are you? Should anybody be taken seriously that thinks about a vaginal prophecy and takes it this seriously? We'll look at other examples next week. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.